Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. for the subway is not helping it any better. And making it even worse is how humid it is. Oy. I just wish it would rain already. You would think by coming down here in the subway and out of the sun, um, it would make it a little cooler. But it's just like we went into a sauna and turned it all the way up. Hey, you know where they don't have a sauna? Arizona. I don't think that's true, but Don't start. I'm just saying, it may be hot, but it's a dry heat. Yeah, but hot is hot. But I'd rather be in a 120 degree heat with relief in the shade than an 85 degree heat with insane humidity and no relief anywhere. But I don't want to have to go all the way out to the desert for relief. People are also a lot less fiery out in the dry heat, and here rather than here in the swampy pool. Cooler heads prevail, if you know what I mean. Okay, that's not always true, as our show last night proved. And at the end of the day, I just don't want to leave New York City. It's too amazing of a place. Well, I can't argue with that. So you win. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the dramatic show, Other Desert Cities. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. We are so glad that you passed on your two tickets to Andorra and decided to join us here for our trip to Palm Springs as we break down the family-filled drama, Other Desert Cities. This show rolled up on Broadway with its story of a tell-all book and a star-studded cast at the perfect time to both make audiences laugh, but also to show the deep divide that exists in upper-class families. But before we can arrive at the palatial palace in the desert, we must first pack our bags with the basics. Other Desert Cities is a play by John Robin Bates. The play marked the Broadway debut of a Bates play. The play was originally titled Love and Mercy. The play was first presented at a stage reading at the Ojai Playwrights Conference in California in August of 2010. Other Desert Cities premiered off-Broadway at the Mitzi E. Newhouse Theater at Lincoln 
Center Theater on January 13th, 2011, in a limited engagement run, closing on February 27th. It was named Outstanding New Off-Broadway Play by the Outer Critics Circle. Now is probably a great time to introduce our design team. The playwright was John Robin Bates, the original music by Just Ellington, director Joe Mantello, set design by John Lee Beatty, costume design by David Zinn, lighting design by Kenneth Posner, sound design by Jill B.C. DeBoeuf, hair and wig design by Paul Huntley, and makeup design by Angelina Avalon. The play transferred to Broadway and arrived at the Booth Theater on November 3rd, 2011. It would stay there until January 17th, 2012, and play for 261 performances. That season, the show would be nominated for five Tony Awards, and would leave that evening with one win. Best Featured Actress in a Play for Judith Light. The show was also a finalist for the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. So let's head down the interstate to the magical desert city. name refers to a control city guide sign on eastbound interstate 10 in california which indicates that the freeway is headed towards indio california and other desert cities that is the rest of the coachella valley and onward towards phoenix arizona the play's events occur around christmas eve 2004 when the family of polly and lyman wyeth gather in palm springs california their daughter brooke wyeth returns home after six years in New York writing magazine pieces. Polly's sister, Silda, is also visiting out of a time spent in rehab. Polly and Lyman are Republicans, while Silda is a liberal who has fallen into alcoholism. The sisters co-wrote a series of MGM comedies in the 1960s, but have since become estranged chiefly due to Silda's resenting Polly for shifting social world views over time. Brooke announces and presents to her family a memoir recounting a pivotal and tragic event in the family's history, the suicide of her late brother Henry, who had been involved in the radical underground subculture in Venice, and a horrific accident resulting in their advocacy. During the course of the story, Brooke experiences bitter conflict between her yearning for independent understanding and reliance and her parents' doting yet secretive motives towards her. During this, she also comes to terms with her family's sorrowing frustration in dealing with her post-divorce depressive episode, even years after Henry's disappearance. Nonetheless, after absorbing the family's perspectives, Brooke insists the memoir is vital for her continuing on in life, whether her family continues to embrace her or not. In an act of submission from Lyman, he and Polly finally recount the specifics surrounding the recruitment center bombing Henry was implicated in. After years of personal clashes and rejection 
from both parents and son. Henry showed up disheveled, begging for help, and insisting he was unaware of his friend's terrorism. When Lyman insisted Henry turn himself in nonetheless, another argument broke out and Lyman slapped him. Henry disappeared into the night and wasn't found until three weeks later by Polly. She reveals that she made an interstate trip with Lyman and her son to the northern border and the ferry he disappeared from. But Lyman painfully reveals they had also doctored Henry's suicide uh, note themselves and stuck it in his shoes with a tearful goodbye. With their darkest secret on earth, Lyman and Polly come to terms with their grief and give Brooke their consent for publishing. Brooke, in the play's penultimate moment, launches all the pages of her memoir into the air in anguish, screaming of her internal suffering since Henry left her life, and trying to spare her parents the potential pain of her suicide despite her continual grief. Lyman embraces his daughter in remorse. An epilogue reveals Brooke at her memoir's publishing, years after Polly and Lyman's passing, per their initial request. She recounts a memory of her brother, wondering when she will see him again. The, the end. end. we like things we thought could be better things we had for breakfast bacon was yummy yeah 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 but back to the show so <laughs> i really like the show this was a show that i i don't normally do this i don't normally buy tickets based on people who are in it but stalker channing and judith light were in the show and i was like yeah i'm gonna go watch them read a phone book like absolutely and I ended up actually really loving the show, loving the story, loving everything about it. I, I didn't know exactly what it was about. If you go and YouTube um, the ads for this, Stalker Channing's so clever. You know, a friend of mine's daughter did it, da 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 Now she had to go to Angola or Aruba or something with an A. Two tickets for Andorra, please. You know, she... She's so witty and catty in that way. And I was like, I can't wait to see what this play is about and what happens. Um, so I loved it. And I thought the pacing of the show was also just really brilliant. It wasn't like a farce, like super fast back and forth, mm -hmm. yelling, screaming match. It just, it moved. It mm -hmm. Everything f had to move. There was a <sighs> urgency with everything. Mm -hmm. You you weren't allowed to sit and, and, and simmer for too long. You had to keep moving somehow. Everyone forced, all the characters forced each other to keep doing something to going somewhere in some way. And I really appreciated that because it didn't let things settle for too long and it kept the agitation stirring a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I thought that this was a very interesting play because it um, dealt with Upper Crest family that likes to hide their feelings and hide their secrets and you know and it it was hard for me to um like 
empathize with anyone in the show until we started going and I realized that, you know, all people have similar problems, whether they have money or not. Well, see, like, I... Stacey Keach and Stalker and Channing, who played Polly and Lyman, um, they were wealthy conservatives. And I was put off by that because they were not the good wealthy conservatives. They were upset with the way the world was and da 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 da. And da, because it was it was it wasn't catered towards them. Right. And this is see the thing is is we, we have the 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 advantage of, of ten years of hindsight. Mm-hmm. So this was ten years ago when, when a lot of the things that are, are present now were not quite as present then. Predominant. Predominant is a better word, yeah. And so even then I was like, I don't, this isn't, this rubs me the wrong way. But then you had Silda, played by Judith Light, this aunt that was, if it were today, she would be your favorite. I mean, she even then was your favorite aunt, but she would be that aunt that everybody loves in the community and everything. Because she was this hardcore rebellion liberal aunt that was like, you should just do it. It's the right thing. And yet, da, da. she would be marching here, there and everywhere, you know, even though she's coming out of rehab. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes you also wonder, like, why did she go to rehab? Question marks. Maybe the family drove her to rehab. I don't know. But it it just causes you to look at this, and then you realize that in the most perfect and clean cut and everything families, like you said, there are these struggles and these secrets. And to learn that their son was involved with a recruiting center bombing during the Vietnam War, that these upstanding citizens covered it up and they saved their child and sent him to Canada and all that. So it's kind of like, well, how upstanding, how conservative are you? You know, if you were really a conservative, you would have turned him in. Because we Mm -hmm. don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. You know, and so... It, to me, it called the attention of, are you, are you playing politics to play politics for the, the party crowd, or are you playing politics because of what you believe in? And, and Polly and Lyman, to me, are playing politics for the party crowd for their careers, where everyone else in, in the play, their politics are truly what they believe. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense at all. Yes, 100% yes. Yeah. And I love that the show was a slow burn leading to that full eruption. Mm-hmm. I didn't see any of that coming. We knew that Henry had committed suicide, but there was very shady around the circumstances that it was. They don't mention initially like how he did it or why he did it. And when she finally like brings it to the light and then all of a sudden we erupt and we learn things, it's like... What? Yeah. You, you, what? Yeah. It, 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 I was agog. I. I didn't see that coming at all, from a mile away. Not even close. I. I really thought this was going to be a parents versus daughter knockout dragout kind of thing, and all of a sudden I was like, "Whoa! There's levels to this. We are not even close to the bottom." Yeah, definitely. Um, let's go ahead and, you know, we've analyzed the story, which I'm sure we'll circle back around to. Um, circling back. 
<laughs> let's go ahead and start diving into the production elements. So let's start with the set, which was gorgeous. Hello, gorgeous. Oh my gosh, it was gorgeous. The, I mean, it was beautiful. Like the colors were very visually appealing. That curved wall, that curved brick wall, mm-hmm. and with it being Christmas, it kind of felt like it was like a lodge, a mountain lodge with that brick wall. But you were in the desert, and you could tell you were in the desert. And there, and fun fact for all of you. Playing our game at home, the desert does get cold. That's why when they do desert houses, you see a fireplace. It is like a 40, 50 degree swing, so you can use a fireplace. (laughs) Um, It felt very retro, but modern. It felt like an old school, like Vegas almost to it. Like that 60s groovy, uh, what is it called, mod, postmodern? I guess, yeah, because it looked modern, but it also looked retro. I don't know how to describe it, like... The the furnishings looked, uh, the lighting elements of that, like the, the, the fixtures, I guess, were modern, but the, like, furniture was retro looking. Right, of. but but it also had that, like, it, you could tell it was something that had been, or, like, the couch had been with them for decades, yes. but maybe they had updated the throw pillows or reupholstered the couch. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, so, like, yeah, it wasn't so stuck in a time. It was it, just, it. it's like you could see the time as it was being pulled with them. Which I think complemented the story because you had elements from two different times. Just like you had people from two different times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the Christmas tree. It was a gorgeous... I love a good Christmas tree. It was gorgeous. Um, it just... The the space overall, it felt really warm and cozy and inviting. I mean, it was yeah. the booth theater, but it still felt intimate and just like I could cuddle right, up in but socks still, and But high. there was still space. Yes. Um, it's that like cozy wasp that you get from a, a Hallmark movie yes. where there's rich people because it's cozy and you look... You, you know, it's Did you just perfect. say Wasp and Hallmark Christmas movie? Yes. We're going to get sued so hard for that. <laughs> um, but, you know, you have this, like, beautiful, you know, magazine, per- picture-perfect ready, um, you know, household, but there's still that space in between so that it's not so cozy that your heart can be warmed. It's it's cozy enough that you think your heart can be warm, but it's really, deceiving. Yeah, yeah. There's that space. What I'll say though is every time, and as as I was working on the script, and I would, you know, in my in the movie in my mind, and I'd go back to it. Um. The the set and the stage in my head is so much bigger than it actually was, in the space. Like we've been to the booth theater a couple times recently and I'm like oh this isn't as big as I remember it to be and so like in my head I'm like yeah that set was just like huge it was enormous I'm like okay maybe it wasn't as big as I thought it was but in Mm -hmm. my head it it lives on in a huge space so complimenting all of that was the costumes definitely I mean they were they were modern Waspy costume. Sorry, wasp is the only word I can use to describe right now. Well, so I'm glad that you brought that up. So they were cozy. And I need to address two characters in particular, Polly and Silda. So Polly was in these like really comfy, cozy sweaters with, with a like, really complimentary Like a necklace. turtleneck, but uh, like a turtleneck sweater with like a um, a handkerchief 
hem on it so that it flowed. Yeah, or just, I mean, even just like your basic, like you mentioned, like a basic Hallmark sweater. Just mm-hmm. looked like that all-American, welcome to Christmas, da-da-da. It's very conservative. Um, and these great white pants, they were just perfectly fit. Fabulous, I'm well put together. And then you had Silda, who had more of a fitting, co- fitted costume. It wasn't at, like, Polly's was a little more looser. Did not have more, it didn't have as, uh, emphasize the form as much. Mm-hmm. But Silda's did. And it was a little more um, patterns and colors. Gaudy. Yeah, and, and also the other thing is I remember the jingling jewelry. Mm-hmm. And to me it helped to emphasize the fact that maybe she was a little less together. Because mm-hmm. she was a little like, I don't want to say tweaking, because that that to me gives off the wrong impression. But she, everybody was chill. It was almost like a, a cult like mentality in right. the room. Okay. And Silda was the one that was like, "You need to go and do this. You need to go. Listen to me. The best Get out, way. Tell the people. best way I can describe it, of course, is going to be in hair terms. You have basically everyone in the room." was smoothed out, blown out hair, except for Silda, who would have been her natural texture that probably was a little bit curly, a little bit wavy, and had a little bit of movement to it, whereas everything else was slick and laid down. Oh my gosh, I actually, this is one thing I did mention. Stockard had that, um, who played Polly, had that hair that just, the 1960s parted down the middle, quaffed down with a little whoosh on the end. Mm-hmm. And Judith Light, who played Silda, looked like she just came in from driving a convertible. It was very... The tips were everywhere and mm-hmm. just crazy, you know. But it, and 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 she had gray streaks in it, you know. Um, but it looked right. Um, listen, since we've mentioned Hallmark films, the best way to put these the idea of these two sisters, there's a great Lacey Chabert Hallmark Christmas movie. Shout out to Hallmark Christmas movies on this episode. All right, we all know they're terribly great. Called Matchmaker Santa. Oh, I love Matchmaker Santa. We all love Matchmaker Santa. (laughs) And in it, there's an innkeeper who's got like this hippie rocker, just awesome rock, you know, rebel sister, but they're they're clearly sisters. Um, And then they have to bake cookies that help all the kids and whatever. That is Polly and Silda. Mm -hmm. And the look and the attitude and, and, and the wigs, you know. And I'm just like, yes. So... If, if you don't know what we're talking about, please go look at Matchmaker Santa and also look up the Hallmark drinking, Christmas movie drinking game and have fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> so going on with that, I think uh, <coughs> let's talk about the lighting. Yeah, so this was really interesting. Okay, I say really interesting because it was really subtle and it, in my memory... I was like, I don't really remember the lighting. And I was looking at pictures. I said, oh, that's why. Because it was present without being present, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Which is good lighting. It was... Like, it It was warm. It felt like a soft front room. It, it was never overbearing. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that really stuck out to me is that there was this... There was always this idea of lingering shadows in the background, um, which I think just really goes to play up the script 
Yes, that there's there's they're covering something up. There's always a skeleton in the closet or something, if you will. There's you know mm-hmm. they're hiding at, something. Right, and at first it comes off as soft, like Christmas cozy lighting. Or I thought it was like softening as the evening got later, and we're just mm-hmm. getting darker. And no, 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 it was shadows creeping in, being surrounded by those lingering shadows. So the the moment that I think of the best is there is a scene where Polly is reading the memoir in a chair. At sunrise. And the sun is rising, and so she's also being lit from the side, which I think is great. So the sun's coming in through the window. But there are these trellises out there creating these shadows, and so these big shadows are being cast across the room and onto Polly. Mm -hmm. And that's where she starts to have this conversation with with Lyman about, we need to tell her. And Mm -hmm. and I think, like you mentioned, these these ever-present shadows, and I'm like, I think that's when they're like, hey... We can't deny that anymore. So I'm glad that I'm not the only one that caught that. That like these, the shadows were Henry. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and, and also just to light someone from the side like that with the sunlight like that. And it was an active sunrise. It wasn't just like, here's a light. It was actively rising. So we saw the light getting brighter. But it didn't move too fast. Which no. Which I think is always the hardest part. Yeah. It, it was, it felt natural. So... And I think all of that tied together, of course, is the brilliance of Joe Mantello, the director. I adore Joe Mantello's direction. I've yet to see a show that he's directed that I've been like, ooh, swing and a miss, buddy. No, I think he, he's directed some of my favorite shows, you know, The Normal Heart, um, Wicked, this, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, um, I've mentioned this. I didn't see the twists and turns coming and the way that the play is written and performed. You're on one, you're on a character's side at one moment and then by the end, like, you've switched. So, like, I was on the daughter's side and it was like, yeah, why are you guys being jerks, parents? Like, meh. And then all of a sudden, hearing the other side, I was like, okay, listen, daughter, sweet mm-hmm. baby daughter, maybe you need to take a step back for a minute. There's a lot here to process. Let's... Mm-hmm. Let's think about this. Let's, hmm. You know, and, and I don't support the parents in hiding this information, but I can understand. Right, because it's like, what else were they supposed to do? They have to look out for the well-being for both of their children. Well, and with their their presence as 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 stars, with their their heightened profiles, mm-hmm. they can't be too careful. Mm-hmm. With who knows this information. And I'm sure that it was eating them alive every day. Especially not being able to see their son and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I I empathize with that. you know, And I was like, okay. That's why I'm on the daughter's side at first. And then I'm like, hold on. Maybe your, your memoir here that's going to stick it to everyone. We could can it a little bit. Because everyone maybe there's been... not someone to stick it to, right? Or and maybe this should just be something to help you cope with your grief, but not stick it exactly. To your and 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 to have that switch, that click, that's a great directorial thing, mm-hmm. because that 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 doesn't just happen in the writing. That has to happen. You have to feel that. The mm-hmm. audience has to feel that moment. The air gets sucked out, and you go, "Oh, something has changed," mm-hmm. and that comes from the directing. Um. The other moment I really loved is I love the breaking moment of the daughter where she finally snaps and just throws her book into the air. And the reason why I love this moment is it is her breaking point. 
Keep in mind, it's Christmas. So the visual and everything I got from it, so she throws it in the air and the pages flutter down. And you have this image that looks like falling snow. Mm-hmm. And she's all alone in the cold, if you will, mm-hmm. with these cold truths all around her. The other thing I want to just highlight with that is there's a certain level of silence that comes when it snows because the snow insulates the quiet. Yes. And so I think it's also that same thing of it's it's just really driving home that point of her being continuing to be isolated in this quiet life. To be silenced. That she's been lived in yeah. her whole life and she's and at that point by throwing the book in the air her subconscious is like we're going to be resided to this silence for just a little longer. Well, and if I remember it, she does that and we're left hearing the pages fall. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was like, I didn't realize it then. Hindsight. I was like, it was snow. It was snow falling and it was a brilliant, like there was so much metaphor happening and it was beautiful. That The little things that we don't register right away, but then we look back and go, wow. You know, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and we've mentioned it. It was like watching a wasp family and who doesn't enjoy that, you know. Um, and the last thing I'll say about the directing <clears throat> is the pacing and the tempo. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was absolutely just bliss. And that's what helped to keep the tension and everything alive is having that, like I said, having that pace. Not The characters not allowing one another to sit somewhere too long couldn't sit in physically you couldn't sit in a thought you couldn't sit in an action anything for too long there had to be something that kept things moving we weren't allowed to be comfortable or uncomfortable for too long the action kept moving in some way it felt like a uh, scab that you just had to keep itching it was there and you you know it's there and so you're like okay i'm just gonna ignore it and it'll go away that, then it starts itching, and then you have to scratch it, and then it starts to flake off and bleed, and then you're like, I gotta leave it alone, and then you just keep coming back to it, and you can't stop. That's perfect. That is that is a beautiful metaphor, and I think they, they they used both humor and drama to itch, and there was a perfect balance of the two until, of course, we got to the end when it was like, well, we're gonna go ham on the drama, and we really need to show this heartbreak and tension. The show has had several notable performers, including Stockard Channing, Stacey Keach, and Judith Light. Let's now talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. <clears throat> I didn't come up with a lot of theatrical impact. This was a really great show, but what it left on the theater, like what, how it impacted, um, the best I came up with though, and I do think it's fair, is it was a Pulitzer Prize runner-up for drama. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's very important to note. Um, even if you didn't win it, the fact that you were a runner-up like mm-hmm. that's 
that's impressive. That that is a great work because even to be mentioned or be in the mix with it, you obviously have something great. Not everybody even gets mentioned. Right. Well, and and this show, um, I don't know if it like did anything new or help to, you know, adjust or or expand um, what can be done in a play script. I don't know if it necessarily made any changes to that, but it created a work that is so strong that it can uphold, you know, a dissection like we've been doing mm-hmm. um, and has made a lasting memory in the tomes of theater. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, that's its impact and, you know, it doesn't have to be... Well, not every show is going to have a huge impact. Yeah, the not everyone's going to be a huge, like, yeah. groundbreaking. I think its bigger impact is the societal impact. And in my opinion, in, in, in when, it, when it was there, it was a heated political climate. And it allowed audience members from different generations and political views to understand one another. You have, and I think you still have, an older audience being more conservative and a younger audience being more liberal. And they were able to sit down at a show and be like, Okay, I kind of see how we interact, maybe, or blah, blah, blah. And to me, it kind of had a similar effect to hair. Okay. Not not necessarily the same. You know, it wasn't like this is the hippie lifestyle and that. But to understand where some people on, on both sides of the spectrum were coming from. Mm-hmm. So, for the longest time... Um... There was this idea that at least my parents grown up with and they got it from their parents that when you're young, you're liberal. When you're older, older you're, you're conservative. conservative. And this show um, kind of was the first thing that I saw that made me realize that there are different reasons that would cause you to switch from conservative to liberal. Or and vice it, versa. And it's not, it's not based on um, aging. Like, because for the longest time, I really just thought it was, oh, well, when you get older, you become more conservative because you have more bills, you have more responsibilities and blah, blah, blah. And this is what made me realize that, no, it's not about that. It is about what the the little things that happen in your life mm-hmm. do. Um, you know, it's the it's the moments, it's the the life events that happen that change your political views not just getting older and needing to save money because you have a family. And so mm-hmm. realizing that through this helped me understand it a little bit, bit more, but also made me realize that if I wanted to be a liberal for the rest of my life... You could be a Judith Light. I could. <laughs> With I her could. jangly jewelry and exactly. her amazing hair. I could, be a radical, I could be a ra- radical liberal feminist my entire life and I didn't have to change that just because I got older and had kids. Which is fine. But that's what I mean. It showed both sides of that to different generations. They could see that. So I, I, I think we have to ask the brilliant, the million dollar question, is the show still relevant? And this is my thought. I think, given the fact that you have political and generational issues existing in this show, in other other desert cities, could certainly find its place here on Broadway. It's, it could still find a footing. But I feel its better home exists in the regional and collegiate theater. But as incredible revivals continue to be done, I'd be interested to see what one of these young directors might 
how they might reinterpret and do this work. Like I was pondering what would an all POC cast of this show look like? Mm-hmm. And would that would that change any of the meaning? Mm-hmm. Would that do anything to change the story or what we get out of it? I don't know. But I would like to see a young director get their hands on this work and and see what what what, what is their interpretation. Right. And that's a, I definitely don't I personally think that as far as Broadway goes, a revival of this would not be in Broadway's best interest purely because Broadway should exist as a place to um, it, it's a place where anything can happen um, and anything can be highlighted and so I think that there are other stories that exist with within like these parameters of this show and maybe let's have another artist display those thoughts and ideas mm-hmm. um, but definitely what you're talking about is, as far as regional or community goes I think that this is an excellent script for other other cities doesn't have to be in the desert um, to explore this idea of um, you know family trauma and um, conservative versus liberal ideals and what kind of that really that family trauma is and how we cope with it and how we maybe should cope with it instead. And so I definitely think this show on other stages beyond Broadway, very good. I would say um, I would love to see this done more often in more conservative states because I yeah. do think that um, you're going to have an easier time building the bridge between conservative and liberal in a conservative audience view with this show. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be great to see that. we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we had the good fortune of seeing the show once back in 2012. And away we go with that. Um, I think, as you can tell, we thought the show was amazing. Uh, we saw it on a matinee. Mm-hmm. Saturday matinee. Um, very warm. Very sunny. And... Um, uh, I, I'm gonna go in a weird order with our tales of the of the crypt, if you will. Um, Stalker Channing did come out. We got to meet her, and Stalker Channing, the instructions about meeting her were very clear. She would sign your playbill. You can get a picture of her, but you couldn't get like with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the people who were there, this is not my first experience. This was my first experience with this, which was there were people who were there who didn't actually see the show. And it wasn't like the show was completely sold out. Mm-hmm. They were just there because they wanted these people's autograph, and I don't know if it was for their collection or if they were just going to go sell it. But I'm thinking, why are you here? You didn't see the show. That's 
Like I'm just I, I don't know. I'm I'm a weird person maybe, but I'm I'm a firm believer that if you're gonna go and stage door, you should have probably gone and saw the show. Yeah. Like that's stage drawings up add on to your ticket. Whether you get an autograph or not, that's but anyway. So this one particular person wanted Soccer Channing's autograph and picture, and he didn't follow the rules, got her autograph, but then he went to go put his arm around her and get a picture with her, and her bodyguard just like grabs his arm and throws him back behind the barrier, and she just kept moving. I was like, oh, they're serious. Mm-hmm. So when she got to us, we were just sweet, and we said, thank you so much, you were brilliant. We got a picture of just her. Um, we've really got to start posting these pictures. We are... Well, not we. I I am just dropping the ball like it is my job. <laughs> I have just been buried in paperwork. Um, and then after she came out, Stacy Keach came out. And he is, he was so lovely. Just so jovial and nice. And I'll never forget that voice, that raspy voice. Um, and then to conclude, the cast coming out for us was the amazing, the legendary, the the woman I just want to shake her hand a thousand times and do all the good in the world because of her, Judith Light, mm-hmm. who, she won the Tony Award. She was so sweet. She sought to talk to us. And at the time, we only knew her from Law and Order. Mm-hmm. You know, as Judge Donnelly. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see her perform in this was amazing. We would later go on to see her in the assembled parties. Mm-hmm. And she was amazing in that. But, she she was she was so kind let us talk to her for a few minutes um and she does so so many good things in the world so much fundraising so much good she's such a good human um and i just seeing everything that she does makes me feel so honored that we had the chance to meet her mm-hmm. so yeah th- i thought this was a really fun and incredible thing to say that we met three legends of the theater in one afternoon mm-hmm. So, theater is back, and that feels so good to say. In fact, let's just say it again. Theater is back. Ah. And we hope you can join us at a show soon. You'll be able to catch other desert cities sometime at a theater near you, I hope. We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and a patron of the show by getting your backstage pass. Information about our new backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by William Ross Chernoff's Nomads, U.S. Army Blues, The Good Louds, Quantum Jazz, and Billy Murray.